Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is February 20th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Sasan Zahir and Nathaniel Berman. We're going to discuss the recent mobilization of tens of thousands of Israelis objecting to the Israeli government's plans to change, to weaken the Israeli judiciary. I'm excited to have this conversation with these two. Sausan Zahir is a Palestinian feminist and human rights lawyer based in Haifa. She has litigated several landmark cases before the Israeli Supreme Court, challenging discriminatory laws and policies against Palestinians, including the 2018 Jewish nation state basic law. Until recently, she was deputy general director and senior litigator at Adala, the legal center for Arab minority rights in Israel. Nathaniel Berman is the as uh, the Rachel Varnhagen Professor in Brown University's Department of Religious Studies. He's the author of, among other books, the, passion, the book Passion and Ambivalence, Colonialism, Nationalism, and International Law. And this past week, he published an op-ed in Haaretz titled, Israel Supreme Court is No Human Rights Savior, Just Ask the Palestinians. So, Safan, I wanted to start with you. Um, there has been, there is this narrative out there, it I think is what bring, is bringing many Israeli Jews into the streets, that the Supreme Court is um, uh, a protector of human rights, and um, that um, therefore must be defended on, on those grounds. To what degree do you think that narrative is true, and to what, what do you think it gets wrong? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Uh, of course, this narrative is uh, not only wrong, but the gap between it and reality, if we look uh, at the uh, decisions of the Supreme Court with regards to petitions uh, related to Palestinians on both sides of the green line, we would see that for Palestinians, basically, this is far from being true. Not only that, for Palestinians from both sides of the green line, uh, uh, or especially as well in the occupied Palestinian territories, uh, the Supreme Court has long been another branch of the occupation that gave a stamp for legitimization of the occupation, for being it a prolonged occupation in contrast with international law. It gave legitimacy to most of the uh, military decisions uh, against Palestinians in the occupied territory. It gave legitimization for the blockade in Gaza as well. And also, if I'll take the Palestinians in 1948, it also has been also another branch for the keeping on the institutionalized discrimination against Palestinians. Now, it's very important for me as a lawyer that have litigated several cases before the Israeli Supreme Court to make one fact. The fact is that the Israeli Supreme Court did indeed intervene in favor of Palestinians, especially those that are in the green line. However, this intervention was never in the issues that are related to the core of the a, a, a conflict between uh, Israelis and uh, and the Palestinians. It never was related to uh, the uh, the core of the Jewish state. Uh, for example, I can give few examples and expand uh, later. Uh, it it uh, refused to intervene in the Jewish nation state law, which gave 
Jewish supremacy uh, as a constitutional uh, uh, value uh, in the basic law, which has a constitutional uh, status. It refused to intervene in several legislations that particularly and intentionally targeted Palestinian citizens of Israel, like the family unification law, which bans family unification between Palestinians from both sides of the green line. Uh, also, it did not, uh, it dismissed and didn't intervene in a legislation that targeted political perspective and freedom of expression, like the Nakba law, like the boycott law, and housing and other housing laws. So uh, the, the, the thing is that, uh, and, and now I'm sitting uh, in Haifa and knowing that there are more than 60 to 70,000 people marching and demonstrating in front of the Knesset because it's going to be uh, confirming the first reading in this legal or constitutional coup, I might say, chanting uh, the refusal for the violation of human rights, especially the minority. But when you come and ask them, which rights do you mean? Which minority do you want? Are you defending? No one talks anything about the rights of Palestinians, citizens, or those that are in the occupied Palestinian territory. So no one cares, no one talks, there's a huge gap. It's like there's a, a, a psychophrenia in the Israeli society that they are chanting for defending the role and the status of the Supreme Court in the name of minority rights, in the name of human rights, when Palestinians are not being welcomed, of course, when Palestinians have, in our perspective, we have been viewing the a role of the Supreme Court as a branch for uh, dominating us more and more by the Israeli uh, regime for since 1948 and since 1967, especially towards the last 20 years, and no one basically is talking about us. Um, Nathaniel, you wrote in your excellent Haaretz op-ed, you wrote, for anyone who is immersed in international law, the current debate about Israel's legal system generally, and the Supreme Court in particular, has an almost surreal quality to it. So I wanted you to add your perspective about what you think this this um, the, this argument that the Supreme Court is a great defender of human rights gets wrong, but particularly looking at it through your lens as a, as a scholar of international law. Uh, okay, thank you, Peter, and thank you for uh, uh, hosting us. Um, and I want to say that I endorse everything that Sasan said and very, very powerfully put it um, based on her, her incredible experience before the court itself. Um, in response to your question, Peter, the reason I said it had that the current debate has an, a surreal quality is for reasons very similar to what Sasan said. Uh, and I would put it in uh, uh, perhaps less interesting, but more te technical terms, that a lot of the current debate is about uh, judicial activism, about whether the right wing accuses the court of being too activist. Um, and uh, the liberals or left say, either they deny it or they say, yeah, it's true, but you go too far in your solutions. Um, from an international law perspective, the Supreme Court has been anything but activist. Um, as Sousen said, in, it has uh, legitimized some of the worst abuses um, of the occupation. Um, and uh, it, the debate just seems very strange. And, and 
I will make a couple introductory points. One is that the Supreme Court's basic approach to the occupation follows along the lines taken in a series of Israeli government meetings in 1967 and 1968. Um, and you, we can see these documents have been uh, put on the Akivot uh, archive website. There are very specific policy measures taken about how to deal with international law. Um, and I can get into some of those technical details, but the, the, the summary of it is a decision was made to say the international law of occupation, in particular the Geneva Conventions, don't apply formally. And the reason was given in these government meetings because of specific policies that they wanted to enact. For example, settlements, house uh, demolitions, expulsions, expropriation of property. All of this was said in 67 and 68. 55 years later, 56 years later, it's the same exact things that are on the table. And so the particular way of strategizing vis-a-vis -vis international law set in these early government meetings is basically how the Supreme Court has dealt with international law. And, and, and then because it's a court, and there are some very smart judges on this court and have been for the last half century, they've developed a series of legal strategies of how to, on the one hand, appear to uh, uh, give at least lip service to international law, while at the same time avoiding, uh, for the most part, not in every case, but for the most part, avoiding its application in a way that would strike down the actions of the occupation regime. Um, and there's a number of such strategies that I can get into in, in detail. But in, in this introduction, let me, let me I give an example, a very concrete example of one of the strategies uh, that I think will be very uh, accessible to people listening to this. And it has to do with the 2021 case uh, that challenged blatant discrimination uh, in terms of the requirement of search warrants. So as anyone who follows this, and certainly anyone who lives in the West Bank knows, the Israeli army thinks it has the right to invade people's homes and to search their property and destroy their property and wake them up in the middle of the night. And they do this pretty pervasively. Um, no search warrants required. Well, in 2020 or so, uh, a lawsuit was brought saying this is only for Palestinians, Jewish settlers, cannot have their homes invaded without a search warrant. And this is blatant, blatant discrimination. Um, and it's a long, complicated case, but the part I wanna to get to is very, very specific, which is the, the court says, as to the claim of ethnic discrimination, this is what they say. This is a, stems from the fact that two different criminal law regimes apply to Palestinians and to Jewish settlers. Uh, uh, Palestinians accused, a Palestinian and a Jew accused of the same crime. The Palestinian will be tried in an Israeli military court where the conviction rates approach 100%. The Jew will be tried in an Israeli civilian court with all the usual procedural guarantees that one expects in a Western, in a Western legal system. So the court says, this difference in search warrants, it stems from that broader difference and that goes beyond the bounds of this lawsuit. So essentially what they do is they say, you're right, it's total ethnic discrimination, but this ethnic discrimination is rooted in the overall regime. Okay, now, 
from a radical, from a, a radical critique of the occupation perspective, that would mean, well, I guess the whole occupation regime is illegitimate, but that's not what the court said. The court was implying the following. And the broader occupation regime, that's a political question, not appropriate for the court. So that's one of the several strategies the court has for appearing to uh, take into account the law while taking it uh, out of the consideration of the court, the possibility of vindicating Palestinian rights. Um, Salsan, I want to go to you. So in a way, what both of you are saying, what both of you are saying raises certain questions. If it's true that the Supreme Court really pretty much enables the Israeli government to do vis-a-vis Palestinians what it wants, then why is there this big fight between Israeli Jews, right? So Salsan, is it, you think, because the Supreme Court does do a good job of protecting the rights of Israeli Jews, and that what the people in the streets are worried about is that their, some of their rights might be eroded if the Supreme Court loses its independence and its power? Or is it more complicated than that? Because you were saying that there actually is this discourse among these overwhelmingly Jewish protests that they're protecting minority, by which I guess they mean Palestinian rights. So help me to understand what you think is actually going on in these protests. And sorry, you're still mute, you're muted again. No uh, I know, I always forget, sorry. Um, well, I, I, that's a that's a very good question because I think that everyone is really very busy in this exact question, especially from the Palestinian side, looking at the Israeli and tell, asking ourselves like, what what are you protesting against? Like, yes, there is uh, a, uh, an attempt basically to weaken the separation of power. Yes, there is an attempt to weaken a, a, the 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 a committee of appointing, changing basically the system of appointing judges. But from our point of view, all the system has already been uh, serving the interest of the uh, Israelis or the Jews and not the uh, Palestinians. Now, I think, frankly, that especially because when, when, when you ask Israelis that are protesting against, their answer would be, we should talk, things should be in consent. And then when you hear that, you would ask yourself, and this is what I ask, my 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 Israeli colleagues. Let's say that the uh, a coup or the revolution is being done in a constant way after having a public debate, enough debate, after enabling everyone to speak. And let's say that you reach the same conclusion that is being now reached in an intensified, speedy way. So basically, it's not that you're protecting human rights. You protest. You're protesting the fact that things are not being debated enough between you and yourself. So it's a very internal discussion. It's a very internal issue between the Israelis, between them and themselves about the character of the state of Israel. And therefore, in my opinion, much of the uh, protest is basically protesting the image of Israel as a democratic state in the eyes of the Israelis. They are fighting for a democratic state for the Jews only. They fear the embarrassment of living in a 
state that would not be called democratic, that would be equated with Hungary, with Poland, and not with the US or France or Germany or other uh, democratic uh, uh, countries in the uh, West uh, in the West Bank. But uh, uh, yeah, unfortunately, people are protesting in the name of uh, democratic values, in the name of democracy, uh, where for us, of course, you know, just bringing the Jewish nation state law, uh, bringing the, uh, all the uh, uh, decisions of the Supreme Court regarding the West Bank that some of them have been mentioned by, uh, by, by, by Nathan. Uh, for us, democratic values have never been uh, a narrative or a concept uh, to use. We have been using concepts of apartheid, of war crimes, of settler colonialism, and all these uh, uh, terms, by the way, are legal terms. We could not have reached those legal terms without the excessive role that the Supreme had in basically not providing protection to uh, Palestinians. Uh, Daniel, I want to ask you the flip side of this question, which is to say, if the Supreme Court is not really is not really defending Palestinian rights, but in fact coming up with legal rationales for the Israeli government to pretty much do what they want to do. Why is the Israeli right so enthusiastic about doing this? I mean, what's the problem with the situation right now from their point of view? These, the Supreme Court's not stopping them from doing very much of what they want to do. So how do you explain this push from, you know, these groups like the Kohelet Forum, these right-wing legal groups, and now this, the, the, this new Israeli government? Uh, you're, yeah, go ahead. Great, yeah, great question. Uh, okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, as the example that I gave showed, law is a very um, complex structure, and there's a lot of contradictions in it, right? Um, and that accounts for the fact that although the Supreme Court has generally upheld the policies in the occupation, occasionally they don't. Every once in a while, they issue a decision that is favorable to Palestinians in a kind of a limited way. They don't, they don't confront the big issues, but they confront specific issues. And every once in a while, there's a decision that is, uh, uh, for example, preventing a specific house demolition would be one example. Another example, actually a broader example, is when they uh, struck down the, uh, the, the law that was gonna regularize the illegal outposts, um, a, a decision that was, sort of surprisingly uh, 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 opposed to the government, but uh, at least in part overturned by a more recent decision uh, uh, related to Mitzpah Kramim. Um, law is a contradictory complex structure and it has this opportunity of occasionally winning small victories and with the right judges, of course, which we're not likely to have, could actually win big victories because the material is there. And I assume that's why people like Sousa and other heroic litigators go to the Supreme Court, because the material is there. It's possible to make the arguments in the language of the existing law that would not only win victories in particular cases, but would actually go to the heart of the occupation regime, which is based on gross violations of the Geneva Conventions, human rights law, and actually basic, basic minimal standards of the rule of law and human decency. So the arguments are there. And I have no doubt if we read uh, Sousen's briefs and heard her arguments in the Supreme Court, we would be persuaded, again, in the terms of the law that's currently existing. So there are possibilities in that system. 
the right wing can't stand the fact, first of all, that there are these small victories. Um, and secondly, that, the, that there's always this possibility that even the possibility of putting the facts uh, and the arguments about the occupation, putting that before the court and before the world, even the fact that that, that possibility exists of putting it out there enrages them. Um, and uh, that's one thing. Secondly, it is clear that the right wing wants to go much further with the occupation in a number of different ways. Um, and there is a fear, I think, that th they might go too far for even for this Supreme Court. Um, for example, a de jure annexation, a formal annexation of at least parts of the West Bank, if not all of the West Bank, um, the movement of the administration of the West Bank into away from the military commander into civilian hands, which would again be- But might, might reject that. that. That's, I think, their fear, that that would go too far, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that it is uh, uh, those sorts of things that the right wing is afraid of. Um, and I think they're also concerned with squelching dissent within the green line um, uh, and uh, 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 as uh, Rives Reck, who uh, I'm sure also knows, is, uh, wrote an op-ed in which he said that what the settlers realized that in order to really have an iron hand in the West Bank, they have to treat the Green Line also as occupied territory and use the same kind of sort of uh, absolute power of the of the government uh, within the Green Line as they do uh, uh, across the Green Line, applying it to Jews as well as to Palestinians uh, and so forth. Um, and it could be that, uh, as your question suggests, that it's in a way it's overreach, that perhaps the hope would be that perhaps in reaching so far that they'll arouse a counter reaction, although, as Sassen points out, the absence of much concern with Palestinians in the current demonstrations is, is, a, is not a hopeful sign, uh, although there are dissenting voices. Um. Did you want to jump in, Sasan? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I I, I do agree with with the, what Nathan has has been saying, and I think that it's important to point out that uh, the the if if you take a look at the language of the uh, coalition agreement between uh, Smotrich and uh, Netanyahu and 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 the Likud party, you would see already the political vision that is also being translated now into the new bills, the new laws, and the and the reform. And it opens with uh, basically with a sentence that says that both sides, both parties, agree that there is an exclusive rights for the Jews in all areas in the land of Israel, not in the state of Israel, in the land of Israel, which is a one step further from the language of the Jewish nation state law, which says that the, there is a, a, a unique right for self-determination for the Jews. It doesn't exactly say where, because it has like on the one hand, the land of Israel and on the, on the other hand, the state of Israel. But this sentence in the coalition agreement says a lot about the aim and the, uh, to, to what extent they will go forward in order to achieve this, uh, this, this coalition agreement, which basically will be unfortunately translated in 
one way or another to full annexation or part of it in the West Bank. This is what this uh, it means. Now, if, if I would as well go back uh, uh, regarding the role, like where do the Palestinians here fit? You know, it's uh, it's not just a pity, but it's so hurtful because only last week there was a new law that uh, got 94 votes of the 120 seats in the Knesset, which enables the revocation of citizenship and permanent residency for from Palestinian prisoners that have been imprisoned and received uh, money or salary or whatever you want to call it from the Palestinian Authority. Now, this basically uh, is applies only on Palestinian prisoners, even though there might be a question of a, a, a whether the Jewish uh, uh, prisoners who were indicted in the same terror act like Palestinians, for example, do receive some funding from one body or one institution or another, which probably might be funded as well from the Israeli government. We we don't know yet. There are some talks about it, but this is an issue, and and I'm not I'm not bringing it in order to talk about yes or no taking money from the a, a, a Palestinian Authority, but I'm. I'm taking I'm bringing it because this is a, a huge important example about the wide consensus even nowadays just last week when it comes to Palestinians you have 94 it doesn't matter you're with the protest against the protest all Jews in the Knesset uh voted for and this means a lot because this means that you can do whatever you want with the citizenship hood of Palestinians whether they are citizens or uh, residents and we will see more of that the Supreme Court might not uh, intervene in this law when we go to the court as it didn't intervene in a similar other cases it didn't intervene in all the public the sorry the a collective punishment uh, cases like house demolitions like evacuation like uh, uh, like uh, administrative detention we have a huge chain of legal tools of collective punishment that are being implemented against Palestinians that often reach uh, in a petition of challenging uh, before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court does not intervene. So last week's law, which unfortunately will follow with more laws that will target Palestinians, basically is a good example in order to show the gap between two sides. There is a mutual enemy, which are the Palestinians, and they will do everything in order to achieve it. And we all know that the Supreme Court will uh, not uh, 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 will not hesitate uh, in terms of not intervening in such issues. And if I could, if I could just add one thing, uh, uh, the 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 expulsion that that Susan is talking about is uh, a clear violation. Certainly, if it if there are people who live in the occupied territory, expulsion is a clear violation of the Geneva Conventions and actually a war crime. And although uh, a few people probably have uh, uh, sympathy for a, a terrorist, uh, certainly a, a convicted terrorist, the next step in the in this legislation will be. Um, expulsion of the families um, of terrorist it suspects. Passed first reading, of even it passed first reading. Exactly, that is uh, a war crime several times over. It violates a number of different provisions of the Geneva Conventions, and I fully expect that if that if that goes before the full Knesset, it'll uh, garner a majority of the on the scale 
that Sussman was talking about about the 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 terrorist uh, uh, suspects themselves. Um, and again, that shows that the in the internal Israeli debate, this question of well, okay, maybe we'll have an override clause to override the decision of the Supreme Court, but not sixty-one, which is what the right wing is proposing, maybe seventy. But as we see from this vote, there might be as many as ninety-four votes even for uh, legislative provisions which are which are in effect war crimes um, and, uh, and that shows the the deep danger here yes yeah. I, I think this is the, the I think one of the problems is the prism that that is very often imposed on Israeli politics from the United States is this prism of the division in the United States or in France or in Hungary or Brazil. And I think what it misses is there, of course, is a profound division, but it's mostly in Israel. The division is between Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Among Israeli Jews, there's a very broad ideological consensus, as you're, as you're both saying. Uh, it, there may be differences in, in strategy and how to maintain Jewish supremacy. But on the basic question of Jewish supremacy, there's an overwhelming consensus, um, which is being, which I think people are missing because there's this fight going on about the Supreme Court. I wanted to they wanted to end with just one last question. I'll start with Nathaniel and then Sasan, if you have anything to add. Um, I was Alan Dershowitz the other day said something along the lines of, well, I'm against this judicial reform because um, one of the reasons that Israel is insulated from from accountability in international courts, like the International Criminal Court, is because people say that it can be trusted with its domestic court system. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but Dershowitz's point is basically, if you underline the legitimacy of the Israeli Supreme Court, then it will make it easier for Palestinians and others to, to take Israel, to hold Israel to account in international bodies like the International Criminal Court, which for me actually might be perhaps a kind of a hopeful sign. Do you think there's any, there's any, is there any truth in that? Um, okay, so it, 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 there, we have to divide the, the question into two. One is a, a sort of political, a political atmosphere question is, does the Israel's reputation for having a functioning uh, Western style legal system does that as a political matter in the court of public opinion, does that uh, uh, help uh, insulate Israeli officials, not so much from international tribunals as from possible prosecution for war crimes in domestic courts? And some countries in Europe have provisions for domestic prosecutions of war criminals for crimes committed elsewhere. Um, and the United States used to have sort of a civil remedy for that, although that's been somewhat uh, uh, destroyed by the Supreme Court. Um, so that's so the question is whether sort of the atmosphere, whether whether governments will be more likely to, you know, put a break on their own court systems uh, uh, from prosecuting uh, Israeli officials. And I think there that's true as a matter of as as a legal matter. Uh, it's probably as a technical legal matter, probably not true. Right. Because, uh, uh, well, in the International Criminal Court, for example, the prosecutor is investigating possible crimes committed in the West Bank. Um, and uh, there is no real plausible factual claim that Israel uh, effectively prosecutes its own soldiers for uh, uh, war crimes, uh, alleged war crimes. And that's just not it's it, it, as, as, the, as we say in law schools, it doesn't pass the laugh test to say that Israel uh, uh, effectively, you know, the, the numbers of soldiers who are prosecuted for war crimes, even receive any punishment is minuscule compared to the number of allegations 
uh, well-founded allegations that are made. Um, but I think that the broader the broader point, though, is that part of the thing I was talking about earlier is that the Supreme Court of Israel tries to pay lip service. It tries to show that it is mentioning international law, that it, even though it's engaged in this very complex cherry picking of it, but that it mentions it and that it 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 at least says to a certain extent it's respecting it, even though then it finds a way of not respecting it. Um, that has given a certain kind of important uh, veneer uh, to the court system. And I think that uh, uh, up until about, well, I'll say five, 10 years ago, that was a really important feature of the court's jurisprudence. And again, it was very surface because in the end, they almost always, not always, but almost always ended up upholding the policies. Um, that has started to decline. And a number of Israeli scholars have written about this, that, that e the court's even um, surface uh, uh, respect for international law has declined. Um, and uh, one example is uh, the, the, uh, the expulsion of Palestinians from Masafriyata in the West Bank. Uh, the Supreme Court issued a decision in which they gave a very short treatment to the international law issues. And the treatment was so, uh, was so uh, um, uh, uh, dishonest. <laughs> and they took a provision that said, you, you, you know, you can't expel uh, people in occupied territory, individual or mass transfers for any motive whatsoever. That's the language of the provision in the Geneva Conventions. And they said it doesn't apply. It only applies with the kind of mass expulsions done by the Germans in World War II, right, for genocide, right, against the plain language of the provision, against the history of the provision, against the interpretation of the provision. Now, the, the judge who wrote this decision is not unintelligent. And one possible conclusion is that it was a, uh, what we would call an internet language trolling, trolling international lawyers, that it was so disrespectful and contemptuous of the law that it almost seemed like an in your face, uh, this is what I think of international law. And that's a new thing. That's actually a new thing to be to at that level of disrespect um, and sort of what was a, uh, foreshadowing of the kind of wholesale assault on on the on the uh, on the uh, on respect for law now undertaken by the right wing. Uh, go go I, ahead. Yeah, I, I I would like to 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 add uh, at least briefly. Well, I think that I, I don't agree, of course. With I agree with Alan Dershowitz because this is the fear. As I said before, it's the fear of the image under the name of independence of the judiciary, under the name of being a democratic state. Yes, there was an image of Israel as a democratic state that has a, a very strong Supreme Court that is independent and that had professionally uh, made judicial review or, uh, with, with petitions that uh, arrived to it. And let's not forget the Supreme Court, the Israeli Supreme Court also opened its uh, doors and gates to Palestinians Palestinian petitions from uh, the uh, West Bank, which also showed that they are willing to review justice over Palestinians. But as Nathan said, in, in most of the in most of the cases, it didn't interfere and it gave legitimacy uh, to the occupation and to the violations. But 
the the one example that I I wanna uh, uh, address here is the is the and there are of course a lot of examples but is the example of settlements on the one hand and uh, uh, not intervening in uh, opening a criminal investigation uh, against killing of Palestinians now. Uh, I think that in these two cases and in other examples, let's not forget that we have a communications, few communications that are now pending before the ICC. The ICJ is now also considering to examine, provide an expert opinion uh, uh, regard or a legal opinion regarding the legality of the prolonged occupation and its effects. This already means that the international courts, uh, despite the court decisions of the Israeli Supreme Court does see that there is a huge role still to examine and review the legality of the occupation, uh, the Israeli occupation. But the until now, from 1967 until now, the Supreme Court, as Nathan said, was very intelligent and smart in basically in a, to provide a very good, a, a smart uh, way to provide impunity uh, for all acts of war crimes. The settlements, for example, it never agreed to discuss the legality, the mere legality of the settlements based on international law. And rather than that, it discussed it from uh, military necessity. Is it uh, property of private, uh, 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 for private ownership of Palestinians? Is it state land, which is a creation of Shamgar and uh, the Israeli military uh, already that was just before even 1967 to prepare for the new legal uh, situation. And it never agreed to deal with the real legal question of whether settlements are legal or not. We hope that the ICC will deal with that. Another example that I would bring is basically intervening in the attorney general, in the government attorney general uh, decision and not opening criminal investigations uh, whenever there is against soldiers, whenever there is a suspicions, uh, suspicious for war crime. Uh, and the reason is that they do not interfere in the professional security considerations of the army. Now, what, however you look at it, it doesn't matter in which, whether you're talking about search or about the necessity of home demolition or any other a collective punishment issue a, or even a, 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 a expulsion, it's all about security because this is the blanket frame that is being given to all the acts of the military. And if the reasonable clause, basically, that is the uh, uh, Nathan just just here to open a, 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 a footnote. Uh, Nathan mentioned in the beginning that uh, the Supreme Court indeed re uh, refused to deal with most of the articles of IHL. It only adopted article like the 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 uh, Hague Convention, for example, as a, um, a, a as a oh I've. Uh, oh. as an acceptable law, I, I have a blackout for the legal term now, but it didn't accept to deal with the Geneva Conventions in, in, in general. And it did say basically the way that it found in order to provide judicial review was administrative law based on the reasonable uh, clause. And in the reasonable clause, it rarely and even not probably once accepted a petition 
to uh, uh, cancel or to intervene in the uh, military uh, uh, decisions or in any other governmental decision regarding the occupied territories. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. A bit uh, depressing and sobering, but I think very, very important if we're to actually understand what's actually playing out uh, on the streets in Israel today. Uh, thank you so much, Sasan and Nathaniel, for sharing your time thank and you. insights. Thank you. And Peter. thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupy Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other rich content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and you can watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMEP's Occupied Thoughts. <laughs>